0: The irony there, or perhaps the paradox, is that I think if we actually focused on making it better for the people who are here, then more of the people that we want to attract would actually come.
1: You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast.
2: Everybody, this is Chuck Marrone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week, I have a returning guest, a good friend from Springfield, Massachusetts. I stayed at his house at the end of last year, which was a, a real treat. He is a Spanish teacher. He is an urban advocate, and he is a blogger at Rational Urbanism. Stephen Schultes, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast.
0: Chuck, I'm glad to be with you again. I loved it last time and I frankly I couldn't wait to have for you to have me back.
2: Oh, we had a lot of fun last time and we had even more fun staying at your great place there in
0: Springfield.
2: That was a really fun time.
0: I I agree. It was um, you know, it was a great experience and it was amazing the sort of the the confluence of events and the things that have happened since then in terms of, you know, the narrative around here about the place and about pedestrian safety, which is uh, an issue that I know took off on the blog and has created a lot of spillover to a lot of other areas with traffic engineering and all that. And, you know, when I think of the tragic circumstances that, that led to that here, but how it's really created some discussion here. And I don't know if real improvements as of yet, but at least people are more aware Of pedestrian safety as an issue.
2: That's great. I want you to, just for people who have not been to Springfield, and now that I have, I think I can ask you some better questions on this, but can you give people a Cliff Notes version of the city as you see it?
0: Sure. It's a formerly thriving industrial city in the Northeast that's been struggling for uh, most of the last 50 years with deindustrialization, suburbanization, and white flight. So what you've got is a relatively small city geographically, like most in the Northeast. It's about uh, 30 square miles. Uh, It's got a population that's holding steady right now at about 155,000 people, but that's down from almost 180,000 back in the 70s. And for the most part, affluent people, prosperous people have left, and large parts of the city, especially the core neighborhoods of the city, are uh, mostly poor and minority. There is now a, a huge Hispanic population. For you know reasons that have to do with you know the jobs that were available in the 50s and 60s, a lot of people moved from Puerto Rico to the Connecticut River Valley, and with that, you know more and more and more Puerto Ricans became comfortable moving to this area. And now it's a city that's almost uh, 50% Hispanic. Right.
2: It's been a pet kind of thing of mine lately. But I I want to point out the core of the city, where you live and and, and where a lot of these really vibrant, interesting communities are at, is a pretty dense place, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Um, It's very dense. People go to my blog today, as a matter of fact. What they'll see is I kind of paint a picture of me driving to my mom's house. (laughs) And you can see how the core neighborhood where I live is really as dense as, you know, as any urban neighborhood in the Northeast. And then as you slowly move out, you can see how our development patterns change. And you can see till finally you get out to where, you know, the home where I was raised, on that street there are no sidewalks.
1: Sure. Sure.
0: You know, so you go from uh, an incredibly walkable place like this to a place that's um, to an area that's single family homes and really designed kind of like uh, Levittown. But the core neighborhood where I am, yeah, is it's incredibly dense, It's incredibly walkable. The only the only interruption to the density right now is with the encroachment of the car is surface parking lots.
3: Right. Right.
0: And that's what really kills you know, the the connection from one neighborhood to another and you know, it really it it sucks the life out of certain certain parts of the city and it keeps some neighborhoods from really achieving critical mass.
2: Well and and I think for me you know the link between density and success, what you've got here is you have a historic neighborhood with a lot of density with some great restaurants and some great shops, you've got really nice cultural. You got the, a really nice park. You've got a beautiful library, but a lot of it is that urban form. And there's also an, a social economic part to this, where you know the neighborhood just isn't thriving, despite a lot of the things that I think academics maybe would like to say make a place successful.
0: Oh, right, and. If you'll forgive me for kind of going off on my own here, to take up, but I think it relates to, to what you're trying to get at. I think what we have, especially in an area like this, is we have places that were designed to be functional. And I, I really think this, this is one of those places. But a lot of the people that live here, unfortunately, are not prosperous. And I hate to say that they're, they're dysfunctional. It sounds so judgmental. But um, the truth is, in terms of our economic system, in terms of success, in the the median, and I can't remember right now if it's household or family income in my neighborhood, is less than $15,000 a year. Right, right. And so that, now yes. granted, most people that live in this neighborhood don't need to have a car. Most people don't have a car. So that saves a little bit of money. But still, uh, $15,000 a year for a household or for a family is not a lot of money
2: it's hard to have access to the broad prosperity of america on that kind of an annual salary
0: it is and then we have these places further out where i think in the long term the places are dysfunctional but the people who live there function very well in the economy sure and and in some ways i think right now that's a pretty good combination because This place is so functional that, as I've written quite a few times, it actually is a good place to be poor. I mean, if you're going to be poor, it's much better to be here than it is to be in a far-flung suburb where you need a car or two just to do everything you need to do. Right now, I'm looking out my window, and there's a guy carrying two armfuls of grocery bags. So he's obviously walking up from... That little Italian neighborhood where we went, and we got the uh, the nice what subs. We it, what we call a grinder. Yeah. yeah. Um, he calls up. Um, he's walking back up from that neighborhood. Probably went to one of the little, you know, bodegas down there and bought some groceries. And now he's walking up. Certainly, that's much easier to do here than it would be, you know, if he lived in a suburban neighborhood.
2: Well, and you can get ridiculously cheap pastries. I, I, we went to that yeah. one uh, amazing place. There were no prices on anything, and I got up to the counter and I thought, well, "This is going to be what I ordered is going to be twenty bucks plus," and I think she said like four dollars or something. Like eh, it's just insulting to you, you know. I mean, you, like you say, you can. The,
0: well, the cost of living here is ridiculously low. Yeah, I the economy is adjusting, and, and I take advantage of that. I mean, it's a in a way I consider it arbitrage. Sure. I teach in suburban Connecticut, and salaries for teachers in Connecticut are, you know, famously generous. I take that salary, and I come and live in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the region, and I'm able to live beyond my means within my means.
2: Right, right. I would like to paint a little bit of a picture for people of some of the things that have been tried around oh. you, short of the casino. I want to talk about the casino later, but that that one staircase that, that was all closed off. Oh and my gosh, ba-
0: that's, uh, that's in the paper again this weekend.
2: Oh my gosh. It, basically, as, as I was in your neighborhood and spent a couple of days there hanging out and meeting people and walking around, it was very clear that every kind of pop culture experiment that could be tried to generate automatic success has been tried there. Don't you have like the NBA, you have like a...
0: Yeah, the, the, the Basketball Hall of Fame. Yeah, like, that's... I, a... I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> as, so, my, as my stepdaughter calls it, the Ball of Fame. Right. The... It's shaped like a basketball. So,
2: exactly. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about just that, boy, it's oh, so easy to experiment on poor people and, you know, let's try all these schemes to generate quick results, huh?
0: Well, I, you know, if you look at my favorite, <laughs> obviously, tongue in cheek, is the downtown mall Yeah, with all of the parking located on site on the upper decks, which of course is beautiful. And what happened was, and this was great because I was having a a conversation with a guy in the planning department and they were talking about a new hotel that's going in to sort of supplement what what's going to be happening with MGM and the casino and everything down here. And he said, well, yeah, but we're going to need to take down at least one or two of these neighboring historic structures to put in a parking deck at the corner of state and main. <laughs> the two main streets in downtown Springfield. This would be the 100% corner of downtown Springfield. Right. they are parking about putting a parking deck. Oh, but there'd be retail on one side at the ground level. Sure. And and I said, you know, that's just crazy. That's an idea that was discredited in the seventies. When he said, well, let's look at that. What happened is when this place, which was called Bay State West, it's now called Tower Square. You know, you get that whole let's rename it and it'll work, right? Um, but there was this huge downtown mall. The idea was that the, the suburban malls were taking you know the downtown shopper away. So what we try to do is recreate the suburbs downtown, and so they removed a whole bunch of historic buildings from a block, and they put in this huge mega mall connected to what were two local department stores downtown. Springfield had two, like, of those Macy's-type you know, miracle on—is it forty seventh or forty second? Yeah, I don't know. Whichever, yeah. whichever street it's on. That miracle, that kind of a department store. Sure. And so I thought, okay, well, we'll connect a shopping mall to that, and everybody will come here to shop. But of course, what it was was a it was a poor imitation of a suburban shopping mall. And what stores were left in the downtown all moved to the mall, which killed. The retail on the street level, right. So what you had was was a, a poor imitation of a suburban mall and dead streets around it, right. So so that was one of the first experiments in the the north blocks of of the downtown beyond the the railroad arch. They ripped out an entire neighborhood and they lay it. You know, it was all the, the you know, the, the towers, it's supposed to be the towers in the park, and then they become the towers in the parking lot. Right. So that's still there. So we have this huge gap between the north end of Main Street, which we drove down, and that's really where you and Jim together have transformed the thinking of a lot of important people in the city in terms of the way they look at that stretch of traditional, Designed Main Street that that's in the just overwhelmingly Puerto Rican neighborhood. Yeah, but that's doing so well. That's so vibrant. Right. But between the downtown and that, we have this what what they called when I was growing up, they called it the New North. But again, it's all auto oriented, you know, buildings trapped within parking lagoons, and that and that kills that, what what could be a great dynamic along with the uh, raised interstate between the downtown and the north blocks. And that brings you to the next thing that you try, right, which is they brought in the huge elevated interstate highways, which, of course, not only had to come into the downtown, they had to meet in the downtown. So you have this confluence of, you know, not just the north-south interstate, but the connector To the East-West Interstate and beneath them, at least they decided to put in parking. So, right, that whole area just deadens the connection from the downtown to the riverfront, the connection from the downtown to the North End. So, those are all examples of things that were tried. Right, right. And then the last one that you mentioned, what's called Pinchon Plaza, is they wanted to connect Court Square, the traditional, and I think you know I I say this all the time and. You were polite enough not to disagree with me when we went by (laughs) it. uh, We're walking by it. What I think is as beautiful a public plaza as there is in the world. I mean, and I would take on, you know, Madrid, Paris, anywhere. I think our court square is just magnificent. Yes. But to connect that space to the quadrangle museums in that beautiful space, they they wanted to put a, a stair. Well, they wanted to connect them. And they're separated not just by a block, but by... I don't know about thirty.
2: Yeah, going to say maybe, about, of elevation. Yeah, I was going to say about thirty feet. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so rather than just putting in, you know, a staircase, which you would know, be kind beautiful, of a nice, right? wide, yep. visually permeable staircase, the architect, the design team decided to create this monument to themselves and their own grandiosity. And so what you get is because they had to put in this giant fountain, which my niece famously the first time. She was taken there. Thought it was the ocean. <laughs> it's that kind of a fountain. I mean, the, it's right. the, the water is flowing over. It looks like a mini Niagara Falls. Sure. It is unbelievable. But of course, you already know what.
2: Well, you got that, the, the molestation rooms off the side, and right. Uh, so yeah. the
0: staircase can't go directly up and over it because you gotta be able to see Niagara Falls. The other thing is, it's got to be at least three or four huge pumps to get that much water to continually flow. Right. So it breaks down all the time. Yeah, those
2: are cheap it's, and easy to run. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the
0: city, and the city can't afford right. to, to fix that. We're a struggling post-industrial northeastern city. We don't have the money to put a quarter of a million dollars every couple of years into these pumps, not to mention the electricity to run it, et cetera. So that's never working. But because that's there, you have this, stairwell off to the right right and basically it creates a nice molestation room or a place where you know if you need to shoot up some heroin it's a great place to be right. but the bottom line is you know again you go back to william white and everything it's just not it's just not visually permeable you can't see from one end to the other where you're going to go you don't know what's in that little space people use it as a bathroom all the time yeah i mean it was just terrible and so there it sits And it's mostly the connecting part now is just fenced off. And it's been fenced off for most of the last 20 years.
2: Yeah, it's it's actually blocked off. We couldn't walk through it, right?
0: No, no, because it's unsafe. Literally, it's too steep because they had to put in, you know, the huge reflecting pool at the base of it. (laughs) They made the stairs too steep. So it feels unsafe to walk on even from that. You know, perspective, and then also again, there's just the idea that, you know, because no one goes there, it's so dangerous because of what could happen in there, and no one would ever see it happen. Right. That they've decided to just close it off. So it 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 costs more than it needed to cost. You know, like even most recently the the students from UMass who came up with redesign ideas for it. This was in the paper yesterday. I mean, you know, bless their hearts. But their idea is: well, all we have to do is put, say, uh, you know, a ten million dollar apartment building next to it with luxury condos, and then people can use that. We can build a, a, a connector within that structure yeah. that will connect people from Court Square to uh, the Quadrangle. Yeah. <laughs> so then you like, can, well, that you can.
2: would be neat. You can walk past that rich was, people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you? Well, have you ever seen the the Monty Python bit? How to do it. No, no. And it's just like, you know, to play the flute, well, you blow here, you move your fingers here, and that's all you do. How can you change the world? Well, just cure some really horrible disease, and then people will really listen to you. And then, you know, it's just these ridiculous pie-in-the-sky sort of things, like, you know, in children's shows. And that's, that's what this is. Like, that's a nice idea, but if there was that kind of demand for that sort of structure in the downtown then we wouldn't be having a problem. Right. Because right. even with the bad design, it, like, for example, that plaza, as horrible as the design is to function in an urban space, if it were in the middle of downtown Boston, yeah. it would still work. Oh, yeah. Because there would be thousands of people that would have to get from here to there, and they'd use it anyway, and the use would make it safe, and it'd be fine. The fact is, when, you, when you're in a city like Springfield, it's very unforgiving. You've got to be perfect. You've got to do it just right because this is, you know, the difference, the margins are very fine. Right. You know, that's why you look at things, you look at things that people do, whether it's in Boston or New York, and people around here, because we're between the two, they'll see a sort of thing done in Boston or New York, and they'll say, well, we can just do that here. We're like, well, no, no, we can't. We're a different place. And also, maybe that was even a bad idea in Boston. Take, like, people are already talking about building a new expanded convention center. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, yeah. Well, look, in Boston, they have, you know, the Heinz Convention Center, and it gets great, but right, because it's in Boston. Right. And you can do that kind of thing in Boston and get away with it. We, we probably don't need the convention center we have now. It's beautiful. It's well done. It frames Court Square really nicely. But I think we've done enough with the convention center thing. But again, the the idea comes up and there's always just enough money and it's like what you described. There's just enough money to do the mega project, but there never seems to be enough money to fix the sidewalk.
2: Right, to do the basics. Yeah. I want to paint the other side of this picture then because it the, the frustrating thing about Springfield is that it it is this like hub of people experimenting on on you guys with the the big project. Yet, despite that, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. You mentioned the sub shop. There's just a great fabric there, just kind of struggling to emerge, but emerging nonetheless. Can well,
0: you- some that survived for years, like that area where, where Frigo's is. Yeah. You know, that's the traditional Italian neighborhood. All of those businesses or similar businesses have been there for decades and decades, since long before I was born. And the fact is, they're somehow managing to survive. And then what you have laid on top of that is the new entrepreneur, especially from the Hispanic community, like the people that you met. Yeah. And, and what they're trying to do is come in and have sort of a different layer of, of slightly different amenities. That are there for the people who live here now and and one of the big problems Chuck is that some of the people not all but some of the people who make decisions are trying to instead of making the city better for the people who are here what they want to do is design the city for the people that they wish were here right if that makes sense, it absolutely. I mean, I know it doesn't sense. make sense to do it, but I mean, if no. We have explained I,
2: I think your description fits most American cities, actually, in many ways. I mean, it certainly fits mine. It certainly fits my place. Uh, we discount all the people who live here, and we pine for you know the person who we wish would show up. Absolutely.
0: The irony there, or perhaps the paradox, is that I think if we actually focused on making it better for the people who are here, then more of the people that we want to attract would actually come. We all want to be, or we all know the kind of people that want to go not to Starbucks or to Dunkin' Donuts, but they want to go to that cool little coffee place. Right. Well, if that cool little coffee place is first created to actually be there for the people that live in the neighborhood, then it's there to be found by the hipster who, who wants to be at a different place and not the Starbucks or the Dunkin' Donuts. Right. So, I mean, I think, I think in the end, it's both good to do in terms of just making the neighborhood better for the people who live here, but it, all, it also is more likely to be successful in terms of attracting people from the outside.
2: You have this situation where around you, you're between New York and Boston, right? And, and around you, some of the most expensive real estate in the nation our friend Seth Zarin actually was hanging out with the day before you were there, and he was talking about in Cambridge where he is at, you're over a million dollars for basic basic housing. Walking through your neighborhood, there's a three story brownstone we looked at for a couple hundred thousand. That was a gorgeous building on a gorgeous street, like three blocks from the downtown.
0: Right. You know, my humble abode is a you know a three story brownstone with a basement apartment. Yep. And I bought it for $90,000, and I overpaid. Yeah, yeah. And my realtor was like, you, you definitely should have just offered them seventy. <laughs> you know,
2: and your place fine. is fantastic. But I still
0: wanted it. Yeah. It was so close to where the girls were going to school, and they loved it. So I went crazy.
2: Well, I want to talk about the schools, because sure. what are the, one of the big hurdles that people have You live in Cambridge and you say, well, uh, I can do my job anywhere. Maybe I can drive to Cambridge once a week uh, and then work remotely. So Springfield would be an option. I I could move there. But you know, I just don't want to put my kids in the schools there. I have this reluctance. There's a lot of poor people. The schools, by all the national standards or whatever standardized testing, seems to underperform. I I don't think my kid's going to get a quality education. and And I will vastly overpay for a house and live a, a much more difficult life in a sense to avoid the school problem. Let me say this for people who are listening. You're a teacher, you value education, you're a very smart guy. Your kids are really really smart people. They went to what I think most people would say is a really difficult challenging school. How as a dad you make that choice and Talk about some of the trade-offs involved and really why you felt this was important.
0: Well, I hope you don't mind if I go into a bit of a narrative. I'd like you to. You know, like the whole... Because I didn't go into all of this as an urban crusader, which I probably am now. I went into this as someone who... I fell in love with the downtown of my hometown. That's true. And then I went and I lived in Europe and I saw how... To me, how great the lifestyle was and how, cause when I first went there, I was just 19. I spent, uh, about three years over a period of five years living in Spain. And I just saw how to me the lifestyle for the kids, for the adolescents just seemed healthier in terms of, you know, not having to be driven everywhere and, and incrementally being more and more responsible in terms of their daily life. And so when I moved back to the States and I got married, my wife and I decided to live downtown mainly for economic reasons. I liked living downtown, and we only had one car, and I was still going to school, and we each had a job, and we found that with one car, two jobs, and full-time school using the bus system, which was centered on the downtown, we could do that, and it was, it was a good idea, and it was inexpensive. So we started doing that, and then we fell into, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Mike Dukakis running for president.
3: I do, sure.
0: But he was running on the Massachusetts Miracle, the, the economic boom that really was mostly around Boston, but which started to come out to this part of the state. And what happened was there was a real estate boom. And in the downtown especially, they just built a lot of market-rate housing. And when right during the presidential election, which is, of course, why there was no President Dukakis, um, the Massachusetts boom went bust. And, And as part of that, a gorgeous condo in my old high school was available for about 40 cents on the dollar. And so we went for it, even though we had a baby girl who was about a year old at the time, Shayla. And, you know, who made, you know, the famous video about the right the crossing there between the, the parking lot and the library. And we moved in and, and we said to ourselves and I said to myself, because even though I'd gone to the Springfield Public Schools in the, the 10 years from when I graduated from the public schools to the time when I did student teaching in the Springfield Public Schools, people, you know, had this idea in their heads that. The schools had declined. Of course, what had happened was there had been a huge amount of white flight. I mean, I was in third or fourth grade when desegregation started and, you know, busing began. Right. And then, you know, a lot, a lot of people just decided. I think everyone hearing this discussion needs to know that obviously I don't agree with, agree with this mentality as they'll hear as the conversation continues. But you know, a lot of people just said, I'd rather not have my kids go to school with black kids. Right, right. So I'm moving to the next town over.
2: I'm out of here. Yeah.
0: I'm out of here. They just left. And and the fact is, as I said, from an economic standpoint, my mom's house in 1973 would have cost about the same as an equivalent house in a neighboring community. Now it's probably worth about one-fifth. Right. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. I don't. Again, I don't think it's right, but it's simply... The way it is.
2: Well, and I think for many of us, I think it's tough to realize it's a self-reinforcing cycle, right? Oh,
0: so, absolutely.
2: So,
1: that's just it. So that's even if it, I,
2: and- even if I'm not a deep racist, if I look around and my neighborhood is in decline, and a neighborhood somewhere else, I can buy a house and actually have it appreciate and make some money. All racial things aside, that's a logical choice, you know, for sure. someone well, who has how the about means. This, Chuck? Yeah.
0: How about this? Uh, this is, I haven't been able to find this. So some, if one of your listeners can actually send me a link to the quote. I'd appreciate it. But I remember reading at one point, Thurgood Marshall, in discussing Supreme Court decisions regarding desegregation, said, I'm just not sure that my children will receive a quality education unless they're in a room with white children. Right. You know who else thought that? White parents. Right. Yeah. They thought the exact same thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the thing is, it, it, it does it right. It isn't necessarily racist, it's simply an idea that people have. But, but moving on from that, so I, I was hearing this, and yet we had this beautiful condo. And so we said, you know what? They're building literally a brand new school a block away, and it's going to be a magnet school in the city. And we went and we met the principal and my, you know, now ex wife became the, the, the PTO president and I was serving on the Seedum the team, the school center decision making team, and we got involved in the school and we said, Did you ever see the movie The Princess Bride?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, okay, like you know where it's like good work, Wesley. I'll probably kill you in the morning. (laughs) Remember that? It was like, well, good work, Milton Bradley School. We'll probably move to a different school district next year. It was that kind of thing. But every year, Shayla seemed to enjoy it and thrive. And then Mackenzie came along and she really seemed to enjoy it and to thrive. And there were issues and I want to get into those later. But what happened was we just, as, as we went through, instead of listening to what people were saying about the school's, we just got involved, and what we found was that uh, the girls enjoyed it. They were achieving incredible amounts of success, and, and they're very different girls. And Shayla was just like a precocious reader and did really well from the beginning. I like to tell people, it's a true story, that when she took a, some kind of a standardized reading test in fourth grade, she tested at the level of a, of a sophomore yeah. in, in what they call higher-level um, understanding, Oh, by the way, sophomore in college.
1: <laughs> wow,
0: not, not sophomore. high. I mean so that's how she did. Mackenzie, on the other hand, had a, although she reads more than Shayla does now, and in the end always tested better later on than Shayla did, when she took her first reading test, she she scored six months behind grade level. And they immediately contacted us and they put her into after school uh, special reading resource. And by the end of the year, she was reading six months ahead of grade level.
1: Wow! Yeah.
0: So I mean, the schools were just responding to our needs, and so we we kind of followed the whole the whole thing through, and the girls had been successful. But and and Chuck, I know this is going to take a while. This may be two podcasts. No,
2: go um, ahead. I, I'm, but I'm, I
0: have to. But I have to explain how I got into this. Yeah. So good. here's first just anecdotal evidence that well, it's working for us. But then it was at the time that both my daughters were going to Milton Bradley School that the MCAS test, which was the statewide test for academic achievement, came out. And the newspaper was very interested in this. You know, the schools and education, that's that's a thing that sells, I think, in the media. And so they started publishing the test scores for the different school districts. And they kind of... Printed them, and I think this is this is a huge part of this discussion. Like it was a like it was a football game.
3: It's a horse race, and you know,
0: you know, Wilbraham twenty one, Springfield fourteen, you know, kind of thing. So Wilbraham schools are better than Springfield schools, kind of thing. Right. And what I did was just you know I was like, okay, but this this narrative that the Springfield schools are bad just doesn't jibe with my experience, so I I want to look into it a little bit more. So I started doing some Internet research, and I found a site called fairtest.org, and then I did my own research based on what I read there, and I took the data that they actually published in the Springfield papers about things like um, teacher salaries, teacher-to-student ratios, classroom size, which is slightly different from teacher student ratios, and free and reduced-price lunch. What I noticed was that with all of the other data points, there was absolutely no correlation, at least that I could see. Maybe a professional statistician could pull out some significance, some weight, to some of the things like per-pupil spending or teacher-student ratio. But there wasn't anything that you could see with Springfield and all of its surrounding communities. But the moment I got to students on free and reduced-price lunch… Yeah. The data just fell right in line right. to the point that, Chuck, there's a, there are two fairly wealthy communities outside of Springfield, East Longmeadow and Wilbraham, and the difference in the percentage of students on free and reduced price lunch was a tenth of a percent, and guess what?
3: Results, that was reflected yeah. in the test scores. Yeah, yeah.
0: The, the district that had one-tenth of one percent fewer students on free and reduced price lunch did slightly better than the other. Right. And and I said to myself, all these test scores are showing us is not these test scores aren't showing us which schools are better. They're showing us which schools teach the wealthier kids. And so I started to do more and more research in that area and what I found was there was an organization here in Massachusetts that decided to actually do a real look at school quality using these data points from the MCAS exam. It was the Donahue Institute at UMass. And what they did was they took what we know about standardized testing and schools, and they took the outcomes and compared them, not not school district to school district, but they compared each school district to how you would expect the school district to score based on the significance of all the different demographic information and what they showed was that sometimes some of the best schools were in the poorest neighborhoods and some of the worst schools were in some of the neighborhoods that you just wouldn't have suspected because the overall the test scores look good but the truth is they weren't doing a lot in the way of value-added. Have, have I explained that well, Chuck? Y- y-
2: let, me, let me try to say it back to you. If you have an expectation based on, and, and I think the data points you cite, I mean, I, I've seen stuff like this, too. I used to be the chair of a school board, and the free and reduced lunch is, is a huge indicator of, of, you know, essentially the struggles that students come to school with.
0: Do a thought experiment. I want you to think of this thought experiment. Yeah, yeah. And everybody, every listener could do this. In your region, I want you to think of the poorest city and the worst high school that you, can, that you can think of. And if you don't know one in particular, just think about what you think that local school looks like. Now think of the wealthiest suburban school. Now imagine that you just take the students from each school and you switch them. Same building, same teachers. And ask yourself, are the test scores going to stay with the building and the teachers or are the test scores going to go with the students? Right. We know what the answer is. And when you teach, I teach, uh, and I teach this this one course. I'm really lucky to teach it at uh, the high school where I teach. And uh, it's the AP Spanish literature exam. I get only the best of the best kids, academically speaking, in the school. And they take this course. Over the last three years, not a single kid has failed to pass the exam. Does that mean that I'm a good teacher? No, it means that I haven't gotten in the way. Right. (laughs) These, These are highly motivated students who, if I have deficiencies, they see what they are, and they know what they need to do to do well on the exam, and they do well on the exam. If you gave me a different group of students, I wouldn't achieve that success. And and I want to check, there's so many things to break out on here. I don't want people to think that I'm test crazy or that I think that, that what tests can show is the be-all and end-all of education. The point I'm trying to make is that what the data showed, according to the Donahue Institute, and I think what anybody can see, is that education is value-added. Right, and even to take one step further back, which people will see, I'm gonna. Knowing that we're having this conversation on my uh, on my blog, I'm gonna post links to all of the blog posts that I've written about this topic. Which you know, I was trying to be clever, so I called it "It's the School of Stupid," um, <laughs> and so I put uh, I think four or five of them in there with all with all the with all the data points. But the truth is that people in the field will tell you people who are, have looked into this that schools aren't as important as we think they are. Teachers aren't as important as we think they are. And I say that as a teacher. Now, it's not that I don't think it. You said it. I think education is incredibly important. I think it's, uh, apart from the, the emotional stability that you give a child and, you know, the love and all of that, I think making sure that they get a good education is my primary responsibility as a parent. But the truth is the two most important parts of that are the child and the parent. The, the school and the teacher are, first of all, they're not as important as we think they are. Right. So that's, that's the first piece. And the second piece is the schools that we think are good. We think that because the chances <laughs> are that they service kids that are ready to learn. And so the results make them look like they're good schools and Urban districts, because they often service students who aren't necessarily as prepared to learn, they don't look as good. But my experience is, and this is someone who's, you know, taught in both, and, you know, I've been a student in an urban district, but with my daughters having gone to urban schools, I can tell you, I think that the city schools are better because they have to be. The analogy that I would give you is that most people who ski in Vermont are better skiers than people who ski in Utah. And the reason is that they have to be. Right. Because in Vermont, unlike this winter, most winters, you're skiing on ice. You know, it's the conditions are horrible most of the time. And, you know, you've got to be good or you're not going to survive. Whereas in Utah, where I went to college, you know, you're dealing with powder skiing most of the time. Sure. You don't deal with, with difficult circumstances.
2: So you're saying... Let me put it this way, and I don't know if you know this, but I come from a family of teachers too. Oh no! And, yeah,
0: I remember you saying that. Oh yeah, yeah.
2: no, you're, you're trending with everything that I've anecdotally experienced and also seen. It, basically, if you have really good parents and you know stable neighborhoods, teachers can, in some ways, mail it in and yeah. come up with good results. But if you're in a really difficult district, if you're going to achieve just, you know, up to expectation, you've really got to have some refined teaching approaches and really do an amazing job. And sure. that that's what you're seeing in the data and, and in your own personal results.
0: Right. And I think to go beyond that, and these are some things that I don't necessarily think are right, but they're simply the case here. My stepdaughter is... One of the only white students in the school. There might be two or three other white kids who attend the school. With about eight hundred, think about eight hundred kids go to to go to uh, her elementary school. There might be two or three other white kids. She's probably the the richest kid. Now, keep in mind, I'm a high school teacher. Right. She's probably the richest kid who attends the school. Yeah, you know, I don't know that for sure, but I know that. When we filled out the form for free and reduced price lunch because they told us we had to, they approved us at first. Yeah. And because they didn't even look, right? Because they just assumed and we had to make them look at it again like actually we know we don't qualify so and they were like they were almost shocked. Right. Oh, are right. you sure you're in the right place? <laughs> um, but we look like most of the teachers that teach there sure. and and most of the administrators. So when we when we walk in, we get treated differently. I remember with, with, this hasn't happened yet with my stepdaughter, but with my daughters, you know, we would go in and, and we would look at the teachers for the upcoming grade. You know, if they were in second grade, look at third grade, if they were in third grade, look at fourth grade. And, you know, we'd always say, oh, that, that Miss so-and-so, she seems really, really good. Wow, every year, both of our daughters were always in whatever class we, we might have mentioned in an offhand comment. Right. You know, about a teacher that we thought was particularly good. Yeah. I, I don't think that happens to everyone. Right. And and to be frank, I think that the, the teachers would look out for Shayla and Mackenzie. Sure. And I think they do now for Lulu. I think that, you know, I again, should they be looking out for every student equally? Of course. Do they? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I think that they, they look... At I mean, frankly, they look at us and they're very judgmental. I think they're very nice people there, but I think they're very judgmental. Like they're wondering, yeah. You can obviously you can live anywhere, but because you want to live in this nice big old house, right? What do you, you do? In this incredibly yeah. poor neighborhood, and you let you let your your, your precious little eight year old go to this school in the middle of an incredibly poor district, right? We, you know, I I felt that all the way through with, with Shayla and McKenzie. Right. To the point that I actually had a faculty member at one of the schools where I taught tell me, and this is not, by the way, my interpretation of what she said. This is what she said when they were in, uh, I think, junior high school. She said, they will both become crack whores and it will be your fault. Right. That, again, I'm not... Yeah, Yeah, no, I, I... I was told that. I was told that you, you could live in a nice suburban school district and send your children there. And instead, you're choosing to send your, your daughters to a high school, by the way, which was considered like the only failing school by No Child Left Behind standards. For a time, it was the only failing school in Western Mass. So by most people's judgment, it would be considered the worst school in the region. Right. And yet, my oldest daughter... Attended Smith College on the most generous scholarship they offer. Mm-hmm. And Mackenzie earned, because of her results on standardized tests, she earned the um, Abigail Adams scholarship and went to Salem State University. And they both were incredibly successful. Mackenzie just graduated magna cum laude from uh, Salem State. And all of that based on the education that they received 100% in the Springfield Public Schools. Well- now, Chuck, I want it, but I want to get to another thing. Here's, here's what I'm Go trying to it. tell you. Your yep. child yeah. will do as well academically in an urban district as in any other type of district. Chances are that's what the data actually suggests. But there are issues. That's, that's like the whole point of, of my blog, Rational Urbanism, was that... There are difficulties when it comes to being an urban pioneer, but they're not the things that people will tell you. People will tell you you can't live in a place like that because the schools are bad and the streets are dangerous. Well, the truth is the schools aren't bad, they're good, but it can be difficult for your child because they are going to be the odd one out. They might be the only, the only white kid in the school. And and I say that again, I wish that, you know, race didn't exist and that we didn't know it, you know, right. that it was, you know, as scientists may say, it's kind of a, a figment of our imagination, but that really doesn't matter. You know, Lulu knows she's the only white kid in her class. Right. Uh, you know, she was in kindergarten and she kind of came home and asked if she was the only white kid in her class because her teacher said the only two white people in the classroom are me and Lulu.
3: <laughs> right. And
0: it, and it made her feel strange awkward and, sure. and as things you know as things move on there's that there's also the difference When I you know Shaylin McKenzie when I was getting my master's degree in Spanish we spent uh, an entire summer living in Spain and then we traveled you know we traveled we went to France we went to Morocco and then we flew home now not a lot of other kids their age at the school they attended have had 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 experiences like that. Right. You know, for a lot of them, a uh, a trip far away. A lot of them haven't been to the cape. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, cape cod here yeah, in Massachusetts. Right. Like for them w- uh, my my wife just went with Lulu on a on a field trip to a maple sugar house and and the kids were were pointing out the window and saying, "Look a duck." Yeah. Yeah. A duck. Look at that. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. And then that's a tree. Look a mountain. You know, so that there are difficulties related to it, but it it really isn't. It really isn't that they won't be taught academically. One of the weird things about this, check, because I had someone call me as a, I uh, should say, email me as a follow up to the blog post yeah. you published at Strong Towns, yeah. and they asked me um, if I had specific data about middle class kids in urban districts. And, and I, I don't. What what you have is you get the crumbs from the studies about other things. There's even a book about gentrified urban neighborhoods and schools. And in the, in the entire book, there's not a single thing about the kids who are gentrifying the neighborhood. It's all about... The poorer kids right. who were there originally, right. and how the gentrification impacts them. Now, do I think that's important? Of course, that's important. It's critically important that we investigate that. But, and this is weird because I kind of wanted this to be the preface to what I was going to say, but I'll, I'll put it here uh, closer to what I'm assuming is the end. Although I can go on forever, Chuck. So you can <laughs> me we're, doing um,
2: well. we're doing fine,
0: and it's it's that I'm. I may sound like I'm trying to proselytize, but I'm really not. What this is about is I turned around five years ago, maybe, as Jim Kunstler really started to to talk about other things, and I kind of wanted my, my weekly pro-traditional town, you know, anti-suburb fix. And that's, by the way, how I found you. Because you know, with with Jim starting to talk more about other topics, I just I, w- I wanted to find something that addressed my issue, sure. which was again a sort of urban pioneering. And honestly, I didn't find anything. So what I said to myself was, "I'm going to do it then." I mean, I'm just an amateur. I may not know what I'm talking about necessarily, but I'm going to start putting out there my ideas and my thoughts, and what I wanted to create was a site where people could go who already love cities. I'm not trying to convince people who live in the cul-de-sac suburb and love it to move to downtown Springfield. I, I, that's, you know, reality may force them to do that 20 years from now and 30 years from now, but that's more your issue. If right. You know what I mean? No, totally. But, yeah. But my issue is I'm a person who wanted to live in an urban neighborhood who wanted to raise my my kids where they could walk across the street to the library and where they could walk to school and where, you know, they could do the type of things that I saw kids doing in Spain. You know, again, my daughters still don't have driver's licenses. You know, Shayla just turned 25, Mackenzie's 22. They're both living very successful lives. They don't want to drive. I wish they would at least get a license so they knew how, but they're not even interested in that. You know, I wanted to do that, but what I was told was I couldn't because some people may be forced to live in those kinds of neighborhoods. They're usually poor and they're usually brown, but as a middle-class white guy, there's no way you can do that or should do that. And what I found was that simply wasn't true. Right. I raised my daughters here. I wouldn't change it for the world. They wouldn't change it for the world. And it was an incredibly, you know, enlivening experience. And I wanted to put this information out there for the type of people who are like me, who are thinking, I want to live in a city. But I'm told I can't unless I can afford to live in Manhattan or Cambridge or San Francisco. Or
2: or I'm willing to sacrifice my kids' future.
0: Right. Or, right, I just, it's right. I simply can't do it. And what I'm trying to tell these people is you can. You you probably have to be very thoughtful about it, but if you live, if you're moving to greater Rochester or Worcester or Providence or Hartford or Bridgeport or Springfield or Akron, and when you go to that area, my guess is that most people that you're going to run into are going to tell you that you can't live in certain parts of the city. In the, the parts of the city that might attract you because of their traditional design. Um, but you're going to be told that's, um, if you have kids, you can't live there. If you're, you know, if you're a dink, you know, double income, no kids, maybe. Right? right? Or if you're single, or if you're an empty nester, maybe. But if you're just the normal, average, you know, Ward and June Cleaver couple with a couple kids, you can't do it. People will tell you that you can't live there. But what I'm trying to say is that if you look carefully, because I can't guarantee that every urban public school in every neighborhood is going to be of the same quality that the schools are here. I I have no idea. I haven't done that research. But what I can tell you is that the data tends to show that what we perceive as differences in the quality of schools Is actually differences in the quality of the students who attend the schools and you have to go in and check it out. But if you do and you do, you know, due diligence, I think what you'll find is that what people will tell you is impossible really is possible. That you can do it. But what you need to watch out for are the real pitfalls. Not, not the ones that the the sort of the boogeyman that people will paint for you. Again, the real pitfalls are that socially your child may be the odd one out and it may be difficult when kids, you know, come over on play dates and they live in free public housing and you live in an 1870s Victorian mansion. That can, that can create some problems. Right. It can create jealousies. It could also create people who want to be your friend just because they want to play with your toys kind of thing at a, at a younger age. At an older age, as kids become more aware of things like race and social class, it can even create tension. I mean, you have to learn how to, you know, uh, Lulu's going to go into with her father, you know, to Disneyland, uh, Disney World. Right. Over over uh, spring break. The-
2: there's no one else in are, Yeah, no one else in her class are, is doing that. Yeah.
0: yeah. Most of the other kids aren't doing that.
2: Right. Right.
0: And and and, and for her it's like, well, I'm not doing it to, to make these kids jealous. I'm not I'm not doing it to show them up. But you could see why for you know, for some of these kids, you know, when going to Disney on ice might be too expensive,
2: even though it's literally,
0: you know, happening next week and it's a block away. Right. You know, she gets to do this. And, and she does have to deal with some of the resentment that comes from that. For Shaylin McKenzie, as I've said many times, they were the best soccer players on the soccer team. They were captains pretty much all the way through. Both of them played their first soccer match for their high school uh, before they attended a class. Yeah. Because of the anomalies of scheduling. You know, M- McKenzie had played uh, a full game of soccer for Commerce High School before you know, going to a day of school. So that was, you know, that was tremendous for them, even though if they'd gone to a suburban district, you know, they probably wouldn't have been the stars of their teams. You know, but on the other hand, they, you know, they always did feel like, like, they were, you know, they were referred to as the white girl or the white girls, you know, and things like that. I right. mean, right. You know, those are the real issues that people need to be prepared for. Right. Not the idea that your daughter's going to come home from school and, you know, in eighth grade and they're going
2: to realize she doesn't know how to read. Right. Right. Essentially. And we're, we are out of time, but I, <laughs> to me, that was the, the point I wanted you to be able to make because so many people who want to be urban pioneers are afraid of the social stigma of what people will think, how they're raising their kids. They're afraid of, you know, their kids not thriving in school. And I think it's very empowering To say, you know, look, there's going to be challenges, but it's not going to be a challenge learning to read. It's not going to be a challenge academically. The challenges are going to be more social. And I think you would say your kids are a lot better off in life having gone through some of those challenges, as uncomfortable as they might have been, than going in a school that was maybe going to be more comfortable for them socially, but, you know, where they their experience with the world would have been a lot different.
0: Absolutely. It was universally, universally. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they feel comfortable now in any environment. If anything, what was difficult for them was when they, when they first went to college and all of a sudden they were in an environment that was much more white middle class or white upper class. And that almost everyone looked like them and came from their, you know, demographic and socioeconomic background. But everything still seemed weird, <laughs> and no one, you know, and no one right. could understand that. My my daughter Shayla wanted to join the uh, the uh, I think they call it Nosotras, which is we, the feminine form. Yeah. Um, at Smith college, it's the it was the the group of uh, Hispanic students at Smith, and of course they kind of looked at her like you know it was essentially she was being a poser, you know, like someone who wanted to you know, I want to hang out with the Spanish-speaking girls because that's cool, right? It's like no, it's just that I all my friends in school were Puerto Rican, and I'm in school now with all these white girls, mostly. Yeah. And yeah, I you know I'm I'm more at home with you guys, right? You know, so yeah, there's that. And Chuck, I do want to address one other thing. Yeah, go and, ahead. Um, go ahead. If, you know, uh, I'm going to make the podcast go over just a few minutes. It's okay. But it's just the other issue is um, safety. Yeah, and and that relates to to child rearing as well. The thing about that is that so much of what people fear about cities and safety and security has so much more to do with behavior than with location. The issues of like, you know, gang memberships and, and, and crime that people associate with city schools, which exist, but have to do with decisions that people make, and and I know it's not all about statistics, but some things, you know, you do have to look at the numbers sometimes, and I would posit, and this I know would be maybe the subject of another entire podcast, that if you have a teenage child, they are going to be much safer going to school in an urban district and living an urban lifestyle than they are in the suburbs, and that has to do with the two most common causes of death for adolescents. And what the first of those, of course, is
3: auto accidents.
0: Auto accidents, and and again, my daughters don't even still don't have driver's licenses. Right. I mean, so they've never driven, and I won't say that they've never ridden in a car, but they don't drive. They didn't drive to do they? They walked to school. They would walk to practice. They would walk back to school to go to evening activities. They just didn't drive. So that was very unlikely that they were going to die in, in a car accident. And the number two Suici- death? Suicide. Suicide. Yep. And suicide is negatively correlated to density worldwide. Right. There just seems to be something, you know, when, when you're surrounded by a lot of people, you get annoyed at them. So you don't kill yourself. That's how I would look at it. But but the bottom line is those are if if you're worried about your child's safety, live in a city. Then it doesn't mean that, that no child no innocent child in an urban school district has never been killed as a as a bystander in a drug deal gone bad or in some kind of a, a gang, you know, struggle at school. But I'll tell you what, at least at, in my time as a parent in the springfield public schools i don't think that's ever happened right and yet i can tell you just this year in my suburban high school i've had just in my classes i've had a student lose a parent a former student dealing with the legal process of having been involved in an accident that took a life i'll put it that way yeah and a student in the school who also died in an auto-related, very suburban-type accident. And this is one year, and that's just one teacher's experience. Right. You know, and they're and a tiny school. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. I mean, the fact is, these kids, I had, one day I had this experience, Chuck, this was one day in one class. It was that AP Spanish literature class I was talking about. I had one girl who had a ripped contact lens, but was afraid to take it out, because if she only had one contact lens in and the other contact lens out, it gave her a horrible headache, but she needed to be able to see to drive home. Right. And I had another student, again, same class, who asked me if she could borrow a plastic spoon, and you're like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Because she needed to eat in class, because this was the, her last class of the day. She was going to be leaving with a bunch of friends, and they were going to be going somewhere to eat. But she was saving up money, to buy a car because she was tired of her mom having to drive her every place. So instead of having, you know, the four or $5 to go to wherever they were going to go to buy some lunch, she was going to eat in class and then go out with her friends so that she could save up to buy a car.
2: I'm removed from high school now a couple decades, but yeah, I mean, I worked 30 hours a week. My my junior and senior year of high school, so I could afford the car to drive me to school and to work.
0: Right. Exactly. And, and so that's, so, and and what I'm saying is that's what these kids do. Right. They're, they're driving every place to do everything and they're horrible drivers. Horrible. (laughs) Right. They're wonderful kids, wonderful kids, but they are horrible drivers and they are in incredible danger every time they get behind the wheel. Right. So when you put those two things together, I think that if you, if you want to live in a city, don't let what they say stop you. I think you'll find the schools aren't what, and Chuck, I'm mad at you. Go ahead. Because people, I remember Ian Rasmussen. Yeah. You guys talking about, well, people don't want to live in those neighborhoods because the schools are bad. Yeah. That can't, be, that can't be tolerated. Okay. That can't be accepted. People just can't say that. Because the data doesn't show that. Again, what the, the data might show that people don't move into urban neighborhoods because they think the schools are bad. Their perception is that the schools are bad. But the truth is what the data shows is that urban districts are no different from any other districts. The schools do what they do. The difference that most people use, the shorthand that they're using, for you know, good school, bad school, are test results but that that don't show us of themselves and by themselves the quality of the schools. So I mean this and and one last thing. Yeah. This is huge because Chuck your strong towns message is essentially has two parts. One is we've after world war 2 we've designed places that aren't sustainable. They're not productive right. enough yep. to sustain themselves, so we have to retrofit them. They're, 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 that's half the argument. The ones that can be retrofitted, which probably not many, have to be retrofitted so that they can be productive places and fiscally sustainable. The other half of the argument, though, is that we've got a bunch of these places that actually were designed to be sustainable. But nobody wants to live there, right? You got two options, right? I mean, and if, and if I'm missing something, you tell me. In terms of the strong town message, we either have to retrofit the places we built so that they work like a traditional town, right? Right. Or we got to get people to move to the traditional towns, right? That are already there, right? Well, what's keeping? Now, as far as the other issue, I have nothing to do with that. I don't care about it. Uh, good luck with that. Yeah, I, you know I, I think? actually
2: think that's a, you know, if we're talking percentages, I think, you know, 5%, 10% of what's been built will be or can be retrofitted. I, I do right. think that the future lies in a place like Springfield, really.
0: but I do too. Yeah. But then what does that mean? That means the sooner we start getting people moving back to these productive places, the better off we'll be, right?
3: Right, yeah. But yeah.
0: But when you start talking to people about doing that, what are the two primary impediments? If they have kids, it's quality of the schools, it's
3: school school. And whether they
0: have kids or not, it's that perception of safety, right? right. Urban crime and all right. that. Right. Okay, and what I'm saying is the schools are not the issue that you think they are. There are issues surrounding your kids. Of course, that will go away if more and more and more people move in. You know, as neighborhoods gentrify, those issues become less significant, right? And to me, gentrification isn't a four letter word. It's what we need to do. So let's get on with it. I'm, I mean, I'm all for making sure that people that are not well off are taken care of. I mean, my politics are so far left, Chuck, that you can't even see me <laughs> from where you are on the political sure. you know, spectrum. But, but having said that, it, this is just, you can't, you can't let a place just degenerate forever. It's gotta gentrify at a certain point. And the other issue is that when you look at urban crime, in spite of the fact that a lot of it happens in, in urban places, it is almost not at all place-related. It is all behavior-related. I guess I'm in more danger of being, you know, caught in a drive-by here than where you are. Yeah. But, you know, for me, it's one in a million, and for you, one, it's one in 10 million. But the fact is, I can walk to do just about everything I do every day, and that reduces the chances of me being in a car accident. And even when I do drive, I drive, you know, on city streets, I'm going very slowly. And here in Massachusetts, we have more accidents per vehicle mile than any other place, but fewer deaths per vehicle mile. Right. And we make make little mistakes with our cars generally, and not as many big ones. But the fact is, I'm safer living here than people are living in those suburbs. We've got to get this message out because these are the impediments that keep people from moving to these neighborhoods, and we've got to get people to move to these neighborhoods. Right. Not, just, you know, not just in my hometown and not just because I love it. Because I'll admit, I don't come to this objectively. I come to it subjectively. I like cities. I like living in my hometown in the downtown. It just so happens that it's what we need to do to save the world.
2: You and I didn't you know, get it. I'm, no, no, I'm totally with you. We didn't get a chance to talk about an update on the casino or State Street. How about we plan on talking again in, in the end of May or early June?
0: Yeah, that sounds great.
2: Let's do that.
0: Um, Unless you, you get a groundswell of people who just who basically say, if Steve Schultes is on again, I'm dropping my membership. I'm
2: never on. listening. Well, maybe, maybe it'll be the opposite. They'll say, you know, you've got to have this guy on next week. And then, you know, I'll be calling you in a panic, even though you uh, you know, we'll be back to work. So we'll have to figure something out. Well, again,
0: out. I'm, I'm pretty reluctant to talk usually, Chuck. <laughs> oh, you know, I know you had to pull all of this out of me. Uh, uh, that's obvious. And I apologize for how much talking you had to do. I tell you, in the, uh, you, in the last uh, hour, I can count on you for it. Yeah. If I you can, twist my arm, I'll come back home.
2: I can count on you for the easy interview, right?
0: Right. Exactly. Were you even, I'm just curious. How many sandwiches did you make and consume um, while I was ranting?
2: Well, I will tell you, for most people, when I start a podcast, if I'm doing an interview, I'll have two or three pages of notes and questions and things to, to discuss. And with you, I had four bullet points. <laughs> and that was it. And I thought, well, How many know, did you get to? Uh, one. No, two. One. <laughs> I got to two. Yeah. So we're good. We'll pick it up again. Okay. Give, everybody, right. give everybody your website address.
0: It's uh, Rational Urbanism. That's it, rationalurbanism.com.
2: All right. Thanks, Steve. You take care.
0: You too. All
2: right. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns.
0: They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story.
1: Chuck Morone, this has been fascinating. Who made it today?
0: I like you. I like your vision of the of the world.
2: Last week, um, we showed you how to become a gynecologist.
0: This week on How To Do It, we're going to show you how to play the flute, how to split an atom, how to
2: construct a box girder bridge, uh, how to irrigate the Sahara Desert and make vast new areas of land cultivatable.
0: But first, here's Jackie to tell you all how to rid the world of all known diseases. (laughs) Hello, Alan. Hello, Jackie. (laughs) Well, first of all, become
2: a doctor and discover a marvellous cure for something, and then when the medical profession really starts to take notice of you, you can jolly well tell them what to do and make sure they get everything right so there'll never be any diseases ever again.
0: Thanks, Jackie. Great idea. (laughs)